I keep discovering the Bible's uncanny ability to speak to what's bothering me. A story I've heard over and over can suddenly hit me with something that I just hadn't quite noticed before. And this year, in the lead-up to Christmas, and then during the holidays, I kept hearing, do not be afraid. I've lived with a lot of fear the last few years, so I guess I, I wanted to hear, I needed to hear, do not be afraid. It starts with the angel's visit to Mary, when in his second breath he says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, calling her by her name. It continues when an angel speaks to Joseph in a dream. Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, again addressing him by name. The angel's very first words to the Bethlehem shepherds were, do not be afraid. Even King Herod is scared when the wise men show up and ask where the baby is. And not only are we told that Herod was frightened, but all Jerusalem with him. Well, the Bible seems to clearly acknowledge and understand that a big part of being human is being afraid. And did you notice in these few quotes that these were all adults or near adults who are being reassured that they are not to be fearful. This isn't something you outgrow when you graduate high school. Right now, at this moment, it seems that most of the grown-ups throughout our whole planet are in a stew of fears. They have big fears, the kinds that make the headlines. But I want to talk this morning about the plaguing personal fears, the kinds that begin with uncertainties that live beside us and within us every day. These fears can be very personal, and so they can be hard to talk about or sometimes even admit to, partly because they can seem small next to the terrors that we read about and hear about relentlessly. And yet, we each live with fears and uncertainties that gnaw. They bring an unsettled pitching in your stomach that won't let go. They can make you nearly crazy with their what-ifs. In a stretch of months that have been full of unknowns, I've been steadied by three stories in the Bible. I find them reassuring, and I thought you may too. None of these stories comes with charts and graphs and scientifically gathered data to convince me. Not one includes a list of rules promising an exact outcome if I follow them. They are stories so that I, so that each of us, can imagine and maybe even see ways through whatever slog we're caught in. Because stories stick with us far better than numbers ever do, at least for me. They live with us. In the Exodus passage, which Sheldon just read, the Israelites were only two and a half months into what would turn out to be a 40-year flight by foot, although they didn't know it yet, 
and things just weren't working out quite right with the food service. Or maybe the people were worried that something would go haywire and they'd be endlessly hungry. And as tends to happen when you're in intense heat or your blood sugar drops, the people may not have been thinking real clearly. And on top of that, all they could see was just more sand. And they started remembering the lamb stew and the extraordinary and unlimited bread they had eaten in Egypt. And they began asking why they had been so eager to leave. The bad times, when they knew what to expect, suddenly seemed more appealing than this uncertain and obviously unproductive wilderness where they had ended up. Now, we have to piece together a few facts in this story. It turned out that God was right there, had been all the time, although it was only after some robust complaining from the people that God explained his food plan in pretty explicit terms to Moses and Aaron. I get the feeling that God had planned to provide breakfast, lunch, and supper some other way, but Since the people needed more reassurance than they had gotten so far, God came up with a new, more concrete way of making sure everyone did get enough to eat every day. In fact, I believe I sensed just a little annoyance in God's statement to Moses in verse 4, chapter 16. I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. And each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day, and in that way I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. Or maybe it was just a teaching moment that got a little snarly when the scribe reported what had happened. Anyway, along with the promise of daily manna and quails came gathering and storage instructions. Notice the Bible gives one whole chapter to this situation. It was that important. You think God doesn't hear. Notice, too, that the manna wasn't delivered in cereal bowls straight into everyone's tent. If you wanted to eat, you had to exercise some faith and energy and go and get your food each morning. Not frantic gathering, just getting enough for only that day except on Fridays, of course. All of which required daily trust and daily action. I'm really comforted by the ordinariness of this. It was not a bit dazzling. This was a routine and steady miracle. It wasn't fancy or dramatic. But by gathering just enough, six days out of seven each week, the people were continually reminded of God's daily care and of how God and each person work together to keep themselves sustained. Manna didn't address all the what-ifs. It didn't promise that the future would always be okay. But the steady promise was that there would be enough for that day if you went out and got it. In fact, as we heard, Exodus 16.35 says, the Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a habitable land. God made good on the promise. God, I'm being reminded, can be counted on. I have to go looking for the manna. And I may not always recognize immediately that what God provides and what I find is what I need. The Israelites, after all, said to each other, what is it? 
which is the first meaning of the word manna. But so far, each day, there has been enough, I can testify. There's another food-related crisis that I'd like to look at, this time in the New Testament. It happens at one of life's great celebrations, a wedding. The unthinkable has happened. Fear of this kind of blunder has kept lots of parents of the bride or groom awake in the weeks leading up to a wedding. Well, in Cana, they've run out of wine at the reception, which is almost as bad as running out of food before everyone's been served. You think people won't notice and make a fuss? Whether this was the result of poor planning or a too tight host or maybe an unexpectedly strong turnout, you know, why don't you come along? I hear there's a wedding. It's a potentially very public mistake. And there appears to be no way to recover. Imagine the panic in the kitchen. Mary, Jesus' mother, who has already seen a good bit of life and consequently has grown both in her faith and her nerve, starts trying to kind of quietly remedy the situation before it becomes a full-blown embarrassment that could do major damage to the family's reputations and future well-being. As in all good storytelling, not all the details are given in John 2, so we listeners can bring our own experiences and imagination to what we're hearing. Mary noticed that the wine was running low and believed fully that Jesus could fix the problem. Now remember, this was Jesus' first miracle the first of his signs, the text says. So how did Mary know that Jesus could take care of this? She certainly, she was his mother. She certainly wouldn't have set him up for failure. So she must have been completely convinced of his power and his wisdom. And she knew that Jesus would not steal the show. Her intent was to save the families from humiliation. And she had had enough experience with Jesus to trust that he would understand the delicacy of this moment. This all is unfolding backstage, and it remains backstage. I'm not sure that the wedding planner or the newly married couple or their parents ever knew about the near disaster until maybe the next morning after they had all had a good sleep. But the disciples had seen it all, and so had Mary. Before we leave this this story, there's one more thing to reflect on. Jesus doesn't first ask, why did this happen? And then adjust his response based on whether the cause was negligence or accidental. If it was sloppy planning or a lack of generosity made no difference in what Jesus did. He recognized that trouble was about to break out. And he stepped in not only to save the situation, but to bring exquisite quality to what was happening. He made it better than if there had been plenty of wine and the problem had never come up. It didn't matter why they had run out. And I find that quite reassuring. This is a little different than daily manna. 
but it is another example of God's presence when we or someone we're observing needs divine help. We learn, too, I believe, that when we're asked or when we see a need to fill an ordinary water pot with water, even if that doesn't seem like doing enough to avert a disaster, we'd better not argue. Frequently, God's intervention is very much entwined in a partnership with us. In Luke 24, we read about a spontaneous little get-together over a meal in an inn somewhere between Jerusalem and Emmaus. Two of Jesus' followers had just had their world fall in on itself. They were completely weary and confused. They were utterly perplexed. We had hoped, the one said. We're astounded, the other said. And when a stranger caught up with them and asked what was going on, as we heard in the scripture reading, they just stood there looking sad. Sometimes it gets that bad. And we simply can't put on a cheerful front anymore. We can no longer act like things are normal. Everything these two guys had hoped for and banked on was apparently gone. The Messiah had been set up for death by our chief priests and leaders, the one told the stranger. You talk about a double blow. The church leaders you grew up trusting have just now maneuvered the death of the new leader you had come to believe was here to save the world. And the floor has just dropped out. The ceiling fallen in. There was no safe place to go. And even the fellow believers you had recently shared so much with seemed to be hallucinating. They're talking about a missing body and a visitation of angels. So why couldn't these two believers recognize Jesus when he showed up? I'm guessing that they were too despairing, too disheartened, too depressed, you pick the word, to see or hear clearly. Even all of the recounting that these two forsaken disciples had just done aloud to each other as they walked about all that they had previously witnessed when they were with Jesus. And he did this recounting partly, too, to answer the curious tag-along stranger on the road. All of that, along with the stranger's recitation of what Moses and the prophets promised would happen, none of that touched them. They were in a deep, dark hole, unable to be reached by the sight of Jesus or the sound of his voice. Hopelessness and fear can put you in that kind of dense fog. But in an unguarded moment, when the three sat facing each other around a table and a loaf of bread, Jesus' spirit apparently filled the place. Whether it was the light in his eyes or the way he held the bread or the sound of his voice while blessing the food, 
the two discouraged men were once again touched by hope and faith in Jesus, who had clearly overcome death, because here he was. Well, we all know eating together doesn't always result in renewed faith or rescue from our deepest disappointments and difficulties. But it is a peculiarly human gift. At least I don't know of any other animals or plants who share this as far as I know. The practice holds within it the possibility of experiencing a kind of community. Sharing food and fellowship never changes what is. It doesn't change what's just happened, but it can become an opening for sharing our sorrows, our dismay, our questions. Because something almost mystical can happen when we eat and fellowship together. We may discover that we have companions who might help us to see and understand in new ways who may help us find a way to carry on, who will walk with us. We may even see the face of Jesus, hear him speak through our friends, and enjoy his presence more concretely and completely than when we're alone, at least for a while. And we will have the memory to carry with us between times. Remember Jesus' words? Whenever you eat and drink, remember me. So, let's remember also to give thanks continually for daily food, for God's mysterious presence and care, and for the gift of these stories.